Going public. The more powerful the class, the more it claims not to exist, and its power is employed above all to enforce this claim. Guy Debord, The Society of Spectacle. February 1, 2012. Emails from Mark were always bracing. He preferred FB messages in general, so email meant something serious was afoot. The first lines of this morning's directive, do not share the contents of this email or the SEC will come get you, didn't allay the momentary alarm. The SEC, of course, was the internal security apparatus, which caught people looking at user profiles or leaking confidential information. As with the Stasi in East Germany, all who lived under its jurisdiction knew they were being watched. The email instructed us to assemble at 4 o'clock that afternoon in the tent. As the campus's main courtyard was still under construction, Facebook had erected what resembled a massive gospel revival tent in one of the football field-sized parking lots to serve as a company-wide rallying hall. And so the throngs poured out of the doors at five minutes to four to hear the news from the prophet of our religion. I arrived late as usual and took a seat in the back row. Mark started by announcing that the company was officially filing to go public. A spontaneous cheer erupted, and he was forced to pause. Then, in one of his more rambling speeches, he warned how going public would also bring the distracting eye of public scrutiny, including no small amount of ridicule. That was something that Facebookers, in their sheltered amour propre, had never been forced to endure. Given the potential distractions of frivolities like the stock price and whatever the Wall Street Journal might say about a service it surely didn't understand, Zuck had one message to impart. Stay focused on our mission. As the child of Cuban exiles, I was reminded by this scene of a piece of collective cultural memory. Castro giving a photogenic victory speech on a flag-draped podium, surrounded by his olive-green-clad coterie during the early days of the revolution. The swirling immediacy of the moment, that spark of history being made before your eyes, the cheering sea-like crowd, the charismatic contortions on Castro's face. That feeling that the universe had conspired to make something big happen right there in front of you, and you were a part of it by being present. That's what stared out at you from photos by Glynn and Corda in those heady days of early 1959, which is why they transfixed the world and still decorate some confused malcontent's bedroom in Berlin or La Paz. In Havana, my cousins were forced to listen to rambling speeches about maintaining core values inside a one-dimensional cult of personality. In Menlo Park, I was sitting in a tent full of people wearing identical uniforms of Facebook swag and doing the same. Back in Havana, my cousins were eyeing posters of Che and Fidel on crumbling buildings and the sides of lurching, belching buses. Alongside were rousing posters, designed in that wonderfully retro-socialist realism only the Cubans still embraced. Todo por la revolución. Hasta la victoria siempre. Patria o muerte venceremos. Meanwhile, I was walking around Facebook, surrounded by stenciled portraits of Mark and equally exhortatory posters. Proceed and be bold. Get in over your head. Make an impact. At their extremes, capitalism and communism become equivalent. Endless toil motivated by lapidary ideals handed down by a revered and unquestioned leader and put into practice by a leadership caste selected for its adherence to aforementioned principles and richly rewarded for its willingness to grind whatever human grist the mill required? Same in both.
a mostly pliant media that flatters the existing system of production, framing it as the only such system possible? Check. Foot soldiers who sacrifice their families and personal lives for the efficient running of the system and who view their sole human value through the prism of advancement within that system? Welcome to the People's Republic of Facebook. But one can simply quit a job in capitalism while from communism there is no escape, you'll protest. As for the actual ability to opt out under capitalism, look at Seattle or SF real estate prices and the cost of a decent U.S. education and consider whether Amazon or Facebook employees could really opt out of their treadmill. I've never known one who did, and I know many. Ask your average family providers, even those in a two-income family, whether they felt they could simply quit when they liked. They could barely get a few weeks off when they had a child, much less opt out. Switching jobs would amount to nothing more than changing the color of the shackles. As the ever-sagacious at GS Elevator declared, in communism, people made lines for bread, while in capitalism, they make lines for iPhones. Sure, iPhones are better than bread, and the standard of living in capitalist countries is clearly higher. But the lived experiences of either, from the point of view of the working proles, bears more than a passing resemblance. The reality is that capitalism, communism, and every other sweeping ideology feed off the same human drives. The founders or revolutionaries' narcissistic will to power, and the mass man's desire to be part of something bigger than himself, even if with very different outcomes. National Socialism, Techno-Futurism, Bolshevism, the Islamic State, Pan-Arabism, La Commune, Jonestown, the Crusades, La Mission Civile Satrice, the White Man's Burden, Evangelical Christianity, Manifest Destiny, Spanish Phalangism, the Church of Latter-day Saints, the Cuban Revolution, the villain with a thousand faces, yoking together the monomaniac's twitchy urge and the follower's hunger for a role in some captivating story. What would our historians do without that loyal stagecoach, that motive force of history? What would I even be writing about? I had chosen a seat behind a detached pair, who on further inspection proved to be Chris Cox, head of FB Product, and Naomi Gleit, a Harvard grad who joined as employee number 29 and was now reputed to be the current longest-serving employee other than Mark. Naomi, between hushed chats with Cox, was clicking away on her laptop, paying little attention to the Zuckian harangue. I peered over her shoulder at her screen. She was scrolling down an email with a number of links and progressively clicking each one into existence as another tab on her browser. Clickathon finished, she began switching slowly from tab to tab, lingering on each with an appraiser's eye. They were real estate listings, each for a different San Francisco property. Catching the address of one, I opened my MacBook and used our great enemy Google to find the address. The location was a decent but not exceptionally choice part of Diamond Heights, a popular quiet neighborhood for many nesting techies. The real estate agency had done its Google homework and the listing was easy to find. It was one of these modern deconstructionist takes on the Victorian paradigm the new structure had likely replaced. All black stone, stained wood, and ridged zinc, with the merest hint of some abstract notions of bay windows, but mostly an asymmetric monstrosity. List price, $2,400,000. We need to maintain focus while we go public, uttered the social media commandante. Every uber-successful tech company has gone through the same struggle to keep people from being distracted by potential share price. 
What made companies like Facebook unique was the persistent scale of the discrepancy. As early employees stayed on and the growing company hired help that was decently paid, but not due to receive anything like life-changing wealth. In a society defined wholly by consumption, the difficulty of wealthy and non-wealthy Facebookers discussing money would be comparable to a Swedish anarchist discussing political philosophies with an Islamic State militant. And so the protocol is to not talk about it at all publicly. People, of course, did discuss it among themselves. Among what were surely many such groups, there was one called NR250, which was more or less a collaborative how-to on being affluent. The title came from New Rich and the 250 from its originally involving the first 250 or so employees, or so the story goes. And at this point, it's more than just early Facebookers. Yes, they were literally nouveau riche in all senses of the term, and from all reports, more than one member has dished to me, they acted like it. How to buy land under an LLC to hide the fact you're amassing a compound, the best resort on Maui, how to book or lease private jets, the best high-end credit cards to use, and so forth, but not a word of it while on campus. In day-to-day -day terms, it was something like what the famous Google masseuse Bonnie Brown wrote in her autobiography about that company's encounter with the bipartite wealth split. A sharp contrast developed between Googlers working side by side. While one was looking at local movie times on his monitor, the other was booking a flight to Belize for the weekend. How was the conversation Monday morning going to sound now? The members of this ruling class furiously denied their very existence, however. Naturally, if you were to poll Southern whites about racism, they'd stubbornly maintain that the South was an exemplar of equal rights. The British upper class would declare their country to be the model of meritocracy. To the extent I can use the word privilege without feeling like a social justice warrior and puking in my mouth, the beneficiaries of such privilege, Eve, never see it. Similar to the proverbial fish who doesn't see the water it's floating in, the FB nobility didn't grasp their pride of place in the corporate hierarchy. At a more formal level, that attitude meant Facebook didn't have table stakes benefits like 401k matching for years. As I once joked to British trader when she asked if Facebook had a pension scheme, the IPO was the pension. Except, of course, it wasn't for many Facebookers, as later employees, including this one, were not due to receive life-changing wealth when the company went public. Footnote. Here's roughly what Facebook engineers made coming in right before the IPO. I know because I referred some friends to FB, and we discussed their offers off the record. If they had a few years of experience but were not a star with unique skills, they could expect a salary in the $125,000 to $150,000 range, with about $500K in equity, at the then-current private market price for FB shares, which was around $30, vesting over four years. If they were stars or were Ph.D.-level research scientists, that equity could get as high as $1 million to $1.25 million over four years. This is all in very taxable restricted stock units, RSUs, rather than options, which the old-timers had received. When you consider that FB's share price would almost quadruple in the ensuing two years, plus the performance bonuses an employee would receive along the way, even a relatively junior engineer could expect to walk away after four years with something like $1 million to $3 million in net worth, assuming he or she acted rationally. End footnote. Facebook eventually did commit to matching retirement contributions, but the internal debates on the topic revealed the rift between the haves and the have-mores. 
Some didn't understand the problem, the have-mores, and some worried about tuition at Stanford and affording a home in even relatively modest San Mateo, the haves, sort of. What was intriguing was how the unwealthy embraced the system, even if they weren't the beneficiaries of this new social order we'd all joined. The junior hire was sucked along by enthusiasm and cluelessness, but the more senior employees at the middle manager level knew the score. They knew that they lived one lifestyle, but their old-timer supervisor, who wasn't necessarily more talented, lived very much another. This was a textbook case of the Marxist argument that capitalists instill the values of the property owner into their managerial classes, while still keeping most of the fruits of labor, in order to make common cause against the exploited proletariat, even though manager and worker have more in common than either does with the senior leadership. Even the most flag-waving Facebook, or Amazon, or Google middle manager, hired when the company was mature, realized he didn't make beans compared with what the early employees and founders, the true owners of the company, were worth. And yet the managers sided with their overseers against the very people they worked alongside every day. Say what you like about Marxism in practice, but it describes our contemporary techno-bourgeois society exactly. As in companies, so in nations. The national conversation also ignored the socioeconomic rift, almost geologic in size, between how the affluent and the just-making-it lived. Facebook was merely the United States in microcosm. Keep focused on our mission. When the Flying Saucers Fail to Appear A man with a conviction is a hard man to change. Tell him you disagree, and he turns away. Show him facts or figures, and he questions your sources. Appeal to logic, and he fails to see your point. Leon Festinger and others, when prophecy fails. March 2012 In 1956, the sociologist Leon Festinger published a landmark study of a cult formed around a Chicago housewife named Dorothy Martin. Martin channeled messages from extraterrestrial beings living on different vibrational planes, which she recorded via automatic writing. Her messages predicted a catastrophic flood that would destroy the United States on December 21, 1954. The acolytes of the cult's prophet would be saved via alien spacecraft, which would whisk them off to the higher planes of existence they had been specially selected to experience. The cult's membership grew in time, and as the apocalyptic date approached, the members left jobs, let properties and businesses languish, and alienated their disbelieving families in expectation of the end times. When the flying saucers and ensuing apocalypse failed to appear on the appointed date, the cult's believers did not lose faith. On the contrary, the experience bolstered their beliefs, annealing them into an intimate confederacy of false belief. Vestiges of the cult persist even to this day. This study would lay the groundwork for Festinger's theory of cognitive dissonance, the mental stress people suffer when presented with realities contrary to their deeply held beliefs. The key takeaway is that humans naturally avoid this discomfort, skirting situations that aggravate it or ignoring data that make their mental contradiction more apparent. Note, the purpose of the following exposition is not a neener-neener troll of Facebook reveling in an embarrassing fiasco for the sadistic glee of it. It's a case study in how even very smart companies can go temporarily mad and believe in fairies or flying saucers under the twin pressures of market expectation and blinkered arrogance. 
Every large company has languished in the delirious trance of some product folly, waking with an urgent start only when reality finally catches up with delusion. What follows is an account of Facebook's great monetization folly, its first great sally into the world of marketing technology, and its utter failure. The original idea, on the face of it, was a good one. First, we have to rewind to the state of Facebook circa 2010, when the product you used to stalk your past or future boyfriend was very different. Those were simple times in Facebook land. Mobile usage was low, and the app was buggy and slow. Pages were the only sanctioned commercial expression on Facebook, each being a sort of simplified personal profile for a brand or business. Remember, the data-rich and expansive timeline we all now enjoy hadn't yet been launched. The only ways for someone else to get a piece of content into your feed were a friend posting it, a non-friend tagging you in a photo, and a page you had liked posting something popular. There was no way to pay and get into users' feeds directly. The few ads were small, postage-stamp-sized affairs in the far right-hand side of the page, usually for aggravating or irrelevant stuff like a game or a low-value product like a phone plan. The only action you could express on Facebook was like. Nothing about playing games or listening to music on Spotify. All that would come later. There was no like button on the rest of the Internet, transmitting your emotions instantly to your feed and those of your friends, as now. Facebook, or really Zuck, saw Newsfeed as the untouchable magic real estate of the Internet, in which the dirty mitts grasping at filthy lucre had no place. How did Facebook make money then? Two ways, which each reflected the high-level bipartite split in the advertising world. The advertising agencies, those moderators of commercial taste who lived in New York and were paid lots of money to spend lots of money, convinced prominent brands to buy likes for their Facebook pages. Companies like Starbucks, on whose board Cheryl sat, or Burberry, they of the $4,000 cashmere coats, routinely forked over $10 million in order to gain 5 million likes for their page. Facebook salespeople would preach the miraculous power of likes the way a Catholic priest might sermonize on the Eucharistic miracle, bread and wine turning into body and blood. However, it was never quite explained how likes would transubstantiate into actual sales dollars. This was one of the mysteries of the Facebook faith that believers had to simply accept as beyond human understanding. To attempt to measure any of this, as with radiocarbon dating the Shroud of Turin, would have been spiritual buzzkill and fucking with the magic, so shush and pay. The direct response advertisers, who you'll remember, are those actively selling you a sweater or a flight to Boston right now, were barely represented on Facebook at the time. Facebook's targeting system was so weak that nobody could actually directly sell anything on Facebook, other than the aforementioned likes. The only direct marketers who managed to make Facebook advertising work were developers on the FB gaming platform, for example, Zynga. There was a bit of signal amid the noise in Facebook's interests targeting, which crafty marketers teased out over thousands of ads and millions of dollars spent. For example, a large gaming company discovered that people who had liked various energy drinks converted very well for Mafia Wars-style games. Basically, energy drinks like Monster were a proxy for that flavor of lunk-headed younger male who played those moronic mob assassination games that were popular in social gaming's heyday, and are now mostly forgotten. It was a Facebook version of the beer and diapers truism, cleverly obvious in that way marketers love. Footnote. 
Beer and Diapers is an apocryphal piece of marketing folklore about a big-box retailer who supposedly hired statisticians to find which products' purchases were correlated. Lo and behold, the eggheads found that beer and diapers sold together in the same shopping cart, particularly on Friday afternoons. The explanation? Husbands driving home from work, picking up huggies for their wives, and getting some brews to deal with the bedlam of an infant household. Like most pieces of folklore, it's probably contrived, but it illustrates a general principle that's truthy. End footnote. The bump in performance was ludicrously small, though, and the engagement rate of Facebook ads was pitiable compared with properly targeted ads on the wider web. Not that anyone at Facebook recognized that, at least publicly. Meanwhile, the core Facebook product launched bold initiatives around search and platform with a cavalier sign-off from Zuck that ads could never get. Like the poor relation invited to a wealthy family's garden party, ads hung back from the Facebook festivities, nervous, unsure of itself, and embarrassed by the shabby jacket it was forced to wear. Footnote. Like every other statement in this book, this one stands as true at the point in time referenced. That poor relation, ads, would soon win the lottery, or rather provide the winning lottery prize, and no longer be huddling next to the punch bowl, but it would take a while to get there. End footnote. So what was it then, finally, this great corporate gamble? It involved a nebulously titled project called OpenGraph, which had launched at Facebook's developer conference F8 the year before I arrived on the scene. Footnote. Pronounced F8 and not fate, the name F8 came from the eight hours that engineers spent in hackathons, the all-night company-wide coding sessions that produced some of Facebook's more random and successful products. End footnote. OpenGraph was the verbal dictionary that accompanied like, and it expanded the Facebook vocabulary to things like play, listen, watch, or buy. It was the new subject-verb-object language of everything you did online. Antonio Garcia Martinez listened to Wax Taylor's Only Once on Spotify. Rather than merely express some vague approval via like, Facebook users could now broadcast everything they were doing with the aid of outside developers who built Facebook's new grammar into their products. By doing so, these developers made their products social and potentially viral. In exchange for pumping their data full throttle into Facebook, those outside developers, music players like Spotify or publishers like the Washington Post, got newsfeed distribution, driving yet more users to their content and services. That was the dream, anyhow. The monetization side of this was almost certainly not what you're thinking. Mining or selling the data wasn't the point. By oblique analogy to Google's AdWords, in which promoted results appear alongside regular search results, the distribution of certain open graph stories would be boosted and appear more often in a user's feed. Zynga and Eminem would, in theory, pay to have their stories boosted and have you, the user, engage with their product or content more often. You never saw any story you couldn't have theoretically seen otherwise. You were just more likely to see it, and maybe you saw it more often. The advertiser was charged every time a user saw or clicked such a sponsored story, which was the name of the monetization product. Remember, back then, someone liking your page and you posting something was the only way for commercial content to even appear in newsfeed. Sponsored stories merely gave it a little kick, a little help in getting in front of your desired user, who had opted in by liking you to begin with. Of course, it wasn't merely likes. 
It was you playing Farmville. It was you listening to a certain song on Spotify. It was you watching a video on SocialCam, a long-forgotten social video site. It was every damn thing you did on Facebook, or even off Facebook, as ingested by a Facebook partner. Eventually, that would include every verb of every action you undertook on the Internet, from eating a pizza to making love to your wife. Well, maybe. And it would all be boostable via the ad system. What could possibly go wrong? Sponsored Stories was the classic, indefensible, two-miracle startup idea. Miracle One was all the companies in the world doing work to integrate with Facebook and give away their data, at dubious benefit to themselves. Miracle Two was those companies' marketers abandoning their old workflows and success myths for some newfangled paradigm, one with unproved and unprovable efficacy, just because Facebook said so. And so, like any two-miracle startup idea, it was almost certain to fail. That didn't stop the ads team, however. While Facebook had held the previously mentioned F8 developer conference for years, its presence or absence a function of the health of its platform and developer ecosystem, Facebook has only ever held a proper marketing conference once. With the unimaginative acronym FMC, the first and only such conference was held in New York, the Vatican City of Advertising. In February 2012, just as the sponsored stories drama was reaching its climax, or nadir, really. A big, splashy show, think an Apple product launch or even a rock concert, and there'd be one at the end, was thrown at, of all places, the American Museum of Natural History on Manhattan's Upper West Side next to Central Park. Weirdly enough, the core product engineers and managers like me had no real role there. That was for the marketing managers and salespeople, and we were pressed into mundane duties like helping people check in at the door. Yeah, come here and swipe your badge and check into Facebook, please, I'd say to the chief executive of some holding company, the joker who spent other people's money ineffectually for a living. This was a show staged with a level of pomp unusual for Facebook. There was a dimly lit timeline hallway in which you used your conference badge to swipe in and identify yourself. Your Facebook user ID had been associated with your conference registration. On swiping, the wall of monitors lit up with a slick demo of the recently launched timeline. As in a near-death experience, you saw your entire life flash in front of you from distant to recent past, along with pics of your friends, newborn children, wedding, and so on. People were wowed. Who wouldn't love a film festival of you? and shared their check-in on the timeline whose summary they had just witnessed, raising the meta to the POMO power. I peeled away from the glib pageant of bullshit, Facebook PMMs and salespeople chatting up the marketing heads of brands and the general managers of agencies, sidestepped the velvet rope, and explored the darkened museum. The Museum of Natural History is one of these old-school 19th-century monuments to didactic showcasing and taxidermy. Entire halls are dedicated to those artifacts of a pre-motion picture, not to mention pre-internet, world. Dioramas made to look like the Serengeti Plain or the Atacama Desert, filled with lynxes and wildebeests, a domestic-looking pair of rhinos. How long could the museum convince anyone living to look at the stuffed dead, I wondered. Facebook and company, to whom the museum was pimping out its August real estate, was busily working to nuke the human mind of the necessary attention span. The keynote to this festival of schmoozing was given by Cheryl, who delivered a forgettable string of Facebook platitudes for 45 minutes. The point wasn't the content, but seeing the Cheryl, live and in person, 
It was the taste of the Oprah-like celebrity, something to justify the taxi ride to the Upper West Side from Midtown. Cheryl was followed by the relative non-celebrity Paul Adams, a product manager on the ads team. Adams was making a name for himself as a Malcolm Gladwell of the brave new social media world, having published a book called Group, How Small Groups of Friends Are the Key to Influence on the Social Web. Like Gladwell, he had cherry-picked a few semi-novel conclusions from sociological research around relationship networks and had woven it into a grand, overarching story about the future of media and consumption, doled out in bite-sized morsels that fit inside a media buyer's brain. The net of it was that new ideas and products propagated via ever-changing social influencer networks and that figuring out the network and exploiting the mutual influence of friends on one another was the key to making your voice heard or product sold. This fit perfectly with the grand open graph sponsored stories delusion in that Facebook's weird little ads with your friends' faces on them were precisely what you needed to make someone aspire to a $60,000 BMW 3 Series M-Class Coupe. Of course, Paul, to the extent he believed the Facebook script himself, rather than exploiting it merely to plug his book and personal brand, was completely wrong, and Facebook's own research revealed as much. Right before the conference, the Facebook research team had published a paper on comparative click behavior that studied the impact of precisely this social context that Facebook was presently flat-out selling to the gathered agency Illuminati. Footnote. Titled Social Influence in Social Advertising, Evidence from Field Experiments, the paper would eventually appear at an Association for Computing Machinery e-commerce conference with Eitan Bakshi, Dean Eccles, Rong Yan, and Itamar Rosen as its authors. Facebook's data science team was absolutely top-notch and boasted both already prominent academics and young up-and-coming PhDs who were ecstatic to get their busy hands on Facebook's vast store of proprietary data. The team's papers, such as this one, were always carefully executed experiments that often called bullshit on some social media truism, often one that originated with Facebook itself. End footnote. Their conclusions were, strictly speaking, mildly positive, but chilling in the overall scheme of things. According to Facebook research, the inclusion of social context, that is, the addition of your friend Joe liked, to a text ad, lifted click-through rates something like 40 to 60 percent versus similar ads without your friend's smiling face. That sounds like a lot, and certainly it was better than the alternative of no effect. In practice, though, this was terrible news. The click-through rates on Facebook ads were abysmal, mostly due to their crappy targeting. A 0.05% click-through rate was average. Achieve a rate of 0.11%, and you were ordering the truffled steak at Alexander's in Soma, on the client's dime, of course. Compared with regular display advertising, Facebook ads didn't even register. Even the worst targeted ads, for example those moronic punch-the-monkey pseudo-game banners, got click-through rates of at least 0.1%. And well-targeted ads using first-party data and rich dynamic creative got click rates as high as 1% or more. It meant Facebook ads underperformed by as much as 20 times if you were actually doing the bookkeeping, which many FB advertisers were not. Thus, a 60% bump in performance was nice, but it was piddly-boo compared with the lift generated by real, piping-hot targeting data. Facebook had bet its entire monetization future on a scheme that modestly boosted click-through, and even then, it wasn't clear why. 
The Facebook research paper mentioned a host of possible experimental confounds. I had seen an early version of the paper and reviewed the basic results and knew how much of this cheerleading around social context was wishful thinking. I wasn't the only one, of course. Facebook's ads partners, independent companies that made money creating and managing ads for clients, knew the Facebook ad system better than the people who had created it. In meeting after meeting with these partners, they'd stress as diplomatically as they could that they weren't seeing any real performance difference with the new sponsored stories. The ads partners were receiving tremendous pressure from Facebook to push sponsored stories on clients. As was then typically the case, Facebook ads products had to be forced down the throats of partners, who then forced them down the throats of advertisers. Since Facebook ads didn't ship products that people actually asked for, launching always had a certain foie gras duck-undergoing-gavage quality to it. Open up and pump it in. Footnote. The justification for this is an attitude best expressed in an apocryphal quote usually credited to the automotive pioneer Henry Ford and bandied about by would-be visionaries. If I had asked what my customers wanted, they'd have said faster horses. The idea here is that the truly prophetic product leader can figure out what users want, even if users themselves can't really conceptualize it. Facebook ads operated under this collective delusion for years, and still does to a certain extent. End footnote. However, to my earlier point, the performance gains attributed to sponsored stories, to the extent they even existed outside the perfect test conditions of the Facebook data science team, weren't significant in the everyday noise of a live ads campaign. And so the partners were struggling to get advertisers to invest in the new sexy hotness. Facebook's reaction was to basically tell them to grip the goose tighter and stick the tube farther down its throat. Yet despite all these hints of failure and fundamentally wrong direction, here we were at the big FMC show, with Paul Adams standing on stage with an image of a stylized social network behind him, like George C. Scott in Patton holding forth before an immense American flag, lecturing the media elite about their patriotic duty in this social media war we'd all been drafted into. All I could do was look around and stare at the rapt faces, in disbelief at the fraud of it all. When it came to product marketing in tech, that old Fleet Street mantra was law. Never let the facts get in the way of a good story. The concluding gala was held in the museum's massive hall of ocean life. Surrounded by fascinating and completely ignored displays of marine life, including a life-size blue whale model dangling from the ceiling, the Facebook marketing army was beguiling the nicely drunken New York media elite. At some point, Alicia Keys and a piano suddenly appeared, as if airlifted in on one side of the huge gallery. The party kicked into high gear, and even the Facebookers stopped pretending to sell anything. I didn't know who this Keys person was, or why every salesperson around me was squirming in excitement. Large crowds trigger my always incipient misanthropy, and when the crush of people became a mob, I booked it out of there in an Uber. By the time I got back to the Ace Hotel in the Flatiron, my feed had a hundred copies of the same image, a spotlit woman at a piano, under a whale, with hundreds of cheering people. The best thing ever, droned the social media masses. To the salespeople, who led shitty, underpaid lives, spent rehearsing the script of a movie in which they never starred. This was one of the very reasons for working at Facebook. Everyone got his show in the end. It's easy for us to see the madness of sponsored stories now. 
The ecstatic throes of cultish product development resemble fog in more than one way. As with fog, when you're in the middle of it, you can't really see it. The fog obscures the farthest reaches of your vision, but everything in your vicinity looks normal. The true density of a fog bank can be seen only from a distance, at a remove. Nobody inside the ads org, from Cheryl to the top ads leadership, freshly poached from Google, to the line product managers like me, ever called bullshit on this utterly improbable business model. Brian Boland, then the VP of ads product marketing and the marketing analog to Gokul, had a magnum of Veuve Clicquot on his desk tagged with a post-it predicting 10% revenue from sponsored stories. As with many failed or stalled product ventures at Facebook, Boland was leading the blind charge. The goal for sponsored stories was to get to at least a tenth of Facebook revenue by the end of 2011. Well, the numbers never even got close. I always wondered what happened to that bottle. I'm guessing Boland quietly took it home and drank it to the thought of all those entreating emails and client pitches. As part of the collective noodling on just what the hell to do, I participated in the first of what would be a long series of Cheryl meetings. Cheryl's role in the ad's construct was interesting. During that time, her conference room, whose name, Only Good News, soon assumed an ironic tinge, would serve as the final appellate court in any disputes on product direction inside the ads organization, and there were many. Since Zuck had more or less completely outsourced the management of monetization to her, she was the vicar of the social media Christ, the viceroy of the Zuckian throne. She would front for his leadership, as well as strategize how to best gain his favor, a billion-dollar skill in which she excelled above all others. On a sunny day in March 2012, the ad's high command, plus a few relevant PMs like your humble correspondent, gathered in Cheryl's lair to discuss the worsening revenue situation. The IPO was in a couple of months. Forward-looking growth was not what the market had come to expect via the leaked whisper numbers about FB revenue, which had historically almost doubled year to year. Sponsored stories was a bust, and all Facebook had to offer was more fairy tales about Facebook pages and the magical effects of followers to one's brand. Those fairy tales had been believed for a while, with the biggest brand budgets in the world, Burberry, Ford, Starbucks, BMW, spending money on likes they didn't know what to do with, and that at best were licensed to spam users' news feeds. Toward the end of the meeting, Cheryl finally snapped. That's it. Starbucks isn't going to spend $10 million per year for likes. No one will do that anymore. She was, of course, right. The like-buying party was officially over. Revenue growth was cratering. If Facebook didn't cook up something else, we were fucked. Monetizing the tumor Growth for the sake of growth is the ideology of the cancer cell. Edward Abbey, The Journey Home March 2012 The sudden revenue desperation would breed many monsters and a few product beauties. As was often my lot with Gokul, I was handed one of the product monsters, the most egregiously grasping and ill-conceived new revenue idea in a season grown thick with them. This idea was of particular interest since it brought me into contact and conflict with the single most important group at Facebook, the one team that above all others can be credited with Facebook's humanity-spanning success. That team was known simply as growth. There are three certainties in life, death, taxes, and Facebook user growth. The ads team takes users and turns them into money. The growth team takes money and turns it into users. Together they formed the counterweighted yin-yang of Facebook. 
Appropriately enough, after our move from California Avenue, the two teams occupied opposing wings of Building 17. The only solid marketers in all of Facebook were to be found not in ads, but on the growth team. Guys like Alex Schultz, a big, beefy, loudmouthed Brit with a shaved head and a mean glare. Or Brian Pipegrass, a soft-spoken, ever-smiling Canadian who had never graduated from college, but who managed over $100 million in annual marketing spend. These guys knew all the tricks. Before anyone on the ads team even knew what real-time ad exchanges were, despite their having been around for years, the growth team used them to retarget users who had almost registered for Facebook, but then through some fluke of internet distraction, decided to click away elsewhere. Growth exploited every piece of psychological gymcrackery, every tool of visual ledger domain, to turn a pair of eyeballs into a Facebook user ID. Like the best direct response marketers, they calculated statistics like click-through and conversion rates out to three decimals and maintained comprehensive databases of user data. Whether via Skinnerian or Pavlovian psychology, they'd figure out the optimal rate to send reminder emails about in-Facebook events, like mentions or new posts from friends, for optimal response. They'd cut deals with mobile carriers to facilitate the Facebook user experience in dodgy countries with slow data service. It was growth that maintained a map of the world, like the board in a very late-stage game of risk, which tracked Facebook's global domination. At this stage, the only countries growth had not managed to tip were either weird, dictatorial, or corrupt, or all three. Russia, Burma, Vietnam, and Iran. Footnote. China, perhaps most saliently, was also not Facebook blue. The Chinese government has an express policy of blocking Facebook, and that social media gap is filled by local copycats. End footnote. Growth people were daily involved in the feverish crusade to turn those countries Facebook blue. One by one, every country fell to their relentless ministrations, and the also-rans in the social network space, High Five, Orcut, MySpace, disappeared like some exotic and forgotten species of seabird. The reality is that Facebook has been so successful, it's literally running out of humans on the planet. Ponder the numbers. There are about 3 billion people on the Internet, where the latter is broadly defined as any sort of network data, texts, browser, social media, whatever. Of these people, 600 million are Chinese, and therefore effectively unreachable by Facebook. In Russia, thanks to Vkontakte and other copycat social networks, Facebook's share of the country's 90 million Internet users is also small, though it may yet win that fight. That leaves about 2.35 billion people ripe for the Facebook plucking. While Facebook seems ubiquitous to the plugged-in, chattering classes, its usage is not universal among even entrenched Internet users. In the United States, for example, by far the company's most established and sticky market, only three-quarters of Internet users are actively on FB. That ratio of FB to Internet user is worse in other countries, so even full FB saturation in a given market doesn't imply total Facebook adoption. Let's very optimistically assume full U.S.-level penetration for any market, without China and Russia, and taking a 25% haircut of people who will never join or stay, as is the case in the United States. That leaves around 1.8 billion potential Facebook users globally. That's it. In the first quarter of 2015, Facebook announced it had 1.44 billion users. Based on its public 2014 numbers, FB is growing at around 13% a year, and that pace is slowing. Even assuming it maintains that growth into 2016, 
That means it's got one year of user growth left in it, and then that's it. Facebook has run out of humans on the Internet. The company can solve this by either making more humans, hard even for Facebook, or connecting what humans there are left on the planet. This is why Internet.org exists, a vaguely public-spirited and somewhat controversial campaign by Facebook to wire all of India with free Internet, with regions like Brazil and Africa soon to follow. In early 2014, Facebook acquired a British aerospace firm, Ascenta, which specialized in solar-powered unmanned aerial vehicles. Facebook plans on flying a Wi-Fi-enabled air force of such craft over the developing world, giving them Internet. Just picture ultralight carbon fiber aircraft buzzing over African savannas constantly, while locals check their Facebook feeds as they watch over their herds. Facebook can't wait for the developing world to get to first world standards of connectivity, so it must create it for them, using ad revenues in the developed world to subsidize this new Air Force's deployment. In time, monetization will follow usage, as it always does. Money follows eyeballs, even if slowly. Eventually, Russia, Iran, India, Brazil, and parts of Africa will fall to the growth team's patient ministrations. Then, Mark Zuckerberg, like a young Alexander the Great at the Indus River, will weep for having no more world to conquer. This all sounds very airy-fairy, so here's a real example of the ads versus growth dialectic to illustrate. Among the various weird products I happen to manage while at Facebook, one is particularly relevant. Let's flash forward for a moment. The logout experience, LOX or LOX, was one of Facebook's mid-2012 IPO period completely fucking desperate let's make more money now products. Basically, it was this. When you logged out of Facebook, instead of seeing the usual Facebook login register page, you would see what amounted to the upper half of a regular Facebook page. That is, the cover photo and header that we all know from our own Facebook profiles. The idea was to sell this space to the richest and stupidest advertiser of all, the legacy admission student of digital media, the brand marketer. Brand marketers, like politicians, are people paid to spend other people's money. In this case, their putative goal is to raise brand awareness, that diaphanous and quasi-intangible substance that makes you covet a $10,000 Rolex Submariner when you finally get that bonus or promotion. The other equally trigger-happy marketer who would supposedly devour locks was the Hollywood-centric agency that wished to trumpet the release of another cinematic crime against humanity. The logout experience was Facebook's attempt to present a tempting target to those marketers, the equivalent of a large banner ad or takeover. The name Locks, a bit of product marketing genius from Scott Shapiro, stemmed from the historical tradition of naming Facebook ads products after either birds or fishes. Given this was a form of preserved Facebook, that is, you saw it after having already logged out, FB Salmon became FB Locks, and a product was born. So far, so mercenary. What was the problem? In ads, we had completely failed to realize the importance of the logout page on FB. A bit of background. In most developing countries, people do not own desktop computers, and their phones are non-smartphone pieces of shit. This is, of course, gradually changing. So people do what you do as a Western backpacker in Brazil or India or whatever. They use an internet cafe or other public computer. They log in, use Facebook at some rate per hour, and then log out. What they leave behind is the logout screen, which just so happens to be the most common web page up on browsers in the world. Really. 
You walk into a library or cafe anywhere in the world, and most of the screens will be glowing Facebook blue. And that is also how most new Facebook users in these countries came into being, not to mention nudging existing users into using Facebook, a fact that we in ads did not even begin to appreciate. The key to understanding the somewhat tense ads growth dialectic is this. What makes a user use the product does not necessarily make money, and the reverse is also true. In fact, they're anti-correlated in general, and you can drive engagement or make money, but not both at once. With Locks, we were proposing blocking the very gateway to FB user growth in exchange for a few hundred thousand dollars from the hangover part three. It was likely a seriously bad trade for Facebook that the growth team had every reason to reject, and that wouldn't even be on the table were it not for the little detail of the IPO. This obviously set the stage for several tense meetings with the growth team. The aforementioned bullheaded Alex Schultz, whom I actually liked and got along with, and the aforementioned Naomi Gleit, who was a senior member of the team. They raged like we were proposing murdering rescue puppies and selling them as chicken wings for our next monetization model, even though they couldn't seem to quite quantify the actual cost in usage of our taking over the logout page every once in a while. To be fair, we had kind of sprung this on them. The question was a subtle and complex one, and they had other bigger problems than helping out ads. But still, it was impossible to gauge a definitive money versus growth trade-off, which meant that outrage and personal sway, which the growth team had mountains of, clinched it. In the end, the net of the ads growth pissing match was that we could run locks units only in certain countries, places where growth had already defeated all other social media comers but not in others where the battle was still a bit tenuous. And so, the sales playbook, as orchestrated by Scott Shapiro of Locks Naming fame, featured this ad unit only in countries like the United States, where Facebook reigned triumphant, but not in Brazil, where the cadaver of Google's pitiable early social media effort, Orkut, was still warm. Such was the eternal tug-of-war between monetization and growth that I had stumbled into, and was more than happy to abandon at the first opportunity. A few weeks later, we launched Locks. The sales team ran with it, and I never paid attention to it ever again. The Great Awakening And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the number of his name. Revelation, chapter 13, verses 16 and 17. March 2012 What's the first thing every child learns? What's the first lesson we impart to a new pet? What makes us snap instantly out of any reverie, no matter how deep? A name. It's simple, but magical when you think about it. You say a special word, and the person, or dog, or infant, turns and directs his or her attention at you. Involuntary and yet so fundamental, it's practically the definition of self-awareness. I know who I am and will respond when called. At the core of how we express ourselves lies a name. Every language textbook starts with the mock dialogue, My name is, je m'appelle, ich heiße. It's central to our identity. There's nothing more dehumanizing than losing one's name as a result of political persecution or incarceration, being reduced to an inhuman number in an assembly line of brutality. Without our names, we wouldn't be us. Modern advertising is just selective name-calling, which is why it's so wonderfully primal. How is that? 
The only difference between the various marketing channels we think are so distinct is the names we use to address the target audience. How advertising works is effectively a call and response of names, with some mechanisms being far more efficient than others. So what are those names? In the direct mail advertising world, it's the postal address we affix to a piece of third-class mail. For example, if Bed Bath & Beyond wants to get my attention with one of its wonderful 20% off coupons, it calls out Antonio Garcia Martinez, 1 Clarence Place, Number 13, San Francisco, California, 94107. If it wants to reach me on my mobile device, my name there is 384-000-00-8CF0-11BD-B23E-10B96E4-0000D. That's my quasi-immutable device ID, broadcast hundreds of times a day on mobile ad exchanges. On my laptop, my name is this. 07JSYJPMB9JUTZERWAR.AWXGGQNGPA1MCMTHGB9WN-4VLZOUPG.BU-UTWG.RG.FTN.0.AWU-XZTUF. This is the contents of the Facebook retargeting cookie, which is used to target ads to you based on your web browsing. Though it may not be obvious, each of these keys is associated with a wealth of our personal behavior data. Every website we've been to, many things we've bought in physical stores, and every app we've used and what we did there. Footnote. A slice-of-life side note on corporate life. While the entire identity vision was a group effort, this metaphor for Facebook identity as various names for the same person, for which Facebook was Global Messenger, was authored by me and first pitched in an early slide deck. In a Cheryl meeting that followed shortly after, Boland, ever the Cheryl lackey, took my slides from a group email, replaced the personal details with his own, down to his family's home address in Atherton, and presented the vision to Cheryl. I was torn between outrage and humor as Bolin walked through it right in front of me. He'd, of course, neglected to even mention it beforehand. Those plotting middle managers and their wiles. End footnote. The longevity of these keys and their associated data is important, however. We move our physical address less often than we clear the cookies in our browser or than McAfee does for us. Changing devices is somewhere in between, which is why data privacy issues on mobile are so much more challenging than on desktop. Footnote. The longer data persists, the more users and politicians worry. In the case of mobile, the device ID that's used to track and target you is mostly permanent and is associated with the physical device in your hand. If Facebook were to accidentally leak the fact you liked Kanye West or are a 34-year-old male, then that data will be associated with your device ID and reused by unscrupulous outsiders forever. Browser cookies, which tend to last a few weeks at most, don't present that threat. End footnote. The biggest thing going on in marketing right now, what is generating tens of billions of dollars in investment and endless scheming inside the bowels of Facebook, Google, Amazon, and Apple, is the puzzle of how to tie these different sets of names together and who controls the links. That's it. Other than this Game of Thrones power struggle among the great digital powers to control identity, targeting, and attribution, everything else is a parasitic sideshow scarcely worth the hassle of following.
mobile, desktop, and offline, every marketer is chasing after three chimerical and incomplete images of its consumer targets, like a punch-drunk boxer seeing triple and throwing wild haymakers in every direction. But behind it all, there's a single person, a nervous ball of needs, wants, and anxieties, whose species evolved in a paleolithic world of toothy predators and the hunter-gatherer feast-famine duality, and who is presently confronted, a mere blip of time later, with an endless feast of blinking lights and hyper-optimized stimuli. Can you blame the poor beasts for clicking themselves to death with Candy Crush Saga, or maniacally and frictionlessly squandering resources they don't have on things they don't need? The real unmet challenge here is reconciling all those various names for that one fidgety brain. This is what we figured out in 2012. This is why Facebook invested such an extraordinary amount of time, money, and people in its biggest ads-related acquisition to date, Atlas, and much more on that soon enough. How would this work in practice? Say you browse for something on Target's website while at work, but you don't want to buy it because your boss is around and whipping out your credit card is awkward. Using the desktop-to-mobile identity join provided by Facebook, Target finds you playing a mobile game on your smartphone while commuting home. It takes over your app experience for a few seconds, perhaps between levels. Such a complete device takeover is known as an interstitial. Internalizing those calls to consume, even if subconsciously, you're eventually nudged into buying that coveted thing when finally at home on your personal machine. Using the device joining ability of Facebook, the advertiser knows who you are on the three devices, work laptop, mobile device, and home desktop. Or perhaps to really strut our identity stuff here, you buy it only a week later when you stop by the store. You pay for the item using your rewards card, for which you entered an address and phone number when you registered. Using the onboarding technology we'll get to shortly, Target has already joined that to your browsers and mobile devices, forming a complete online and offline picture of you as a consumer. What happens then? The revenue from that sale, whether online or in the physical store, is credited toward the mobile media ad impression the advertiser paid for. Thanks to this identity bridge between all devices, advertisers know exactly what paid media influenced you to consume. The ad server, the company that actually showed you the ad on that mobile game you were playing, understands exactly which set of flashing pixels, the most virtual thing in the world, made you spend cold, hard cash. Suddenly, that mobile ad impression the game's publisher sold you becomes that much more valuable. Sounds big brotherish, you might think. But who really is Big Brother these days? Facebook or Google? Nah, not even close. The NSA and the entire Snowden surveillance state? Maybe, if you frequent jihadist websites. The FBI CIA apparatus? Yes and no. They took a decade to get bin Laden and shut down people selling drugs online via Silk Road only after the founder made some clumsy mistakes. I submit that the role of modern-day Big Brother is actually played by companies you've likely never heard about. Companies with names like Axiom, Experian, Epsilon, Merkle, and Newstar, among others. These are the companies that since the dawn of the direct marketing age in the 60s and 70s have been tracking all of consumer America. They know your name, address, phone number, email address, education level, rough income, who else is in your household and their ages and spending patterns, and which consumer segment you fit into. And they've been accumulating this information since the earliest versions of the Internet even existed. But it gets better. They suck in what's known as customer relations management, CRM data, from most big retailers, basically the rap sheet on each and every customer, 
the data holy of holies for them. They supplement any incomplete data, construct ever more accurate personal profiles, craft targeting segments for use online and off, and employ them to find similar people in their endless consumer database. Unlike the Stasi's archives, now available to former East Germans, no one, with few exceptions, can access these records. Does that all matter? We live in a society in which your cultural, religious, or political identity has been supplanted by your consumption patterns. Soccer mom, iPad generation, NASCAR dad. In fact, companies like Nielsen have constructed detailed menageries of consumers, organized along multiple dimensions like family size, education, income, dwelling, and so forth, and with amusing monikers like beltway boomers and country casuals. Marketed as the prism segments, they form a sort of predictive zodiac of consumption, purportedly allowing marketers to tailor their wiles to demographic archetypes. You consume, therefore you are. These companies are the caretakers of that non-internet commercial identity, and frankly, not much else about you matters in this capitalistic world. Think about it. Which would most terrify you to have posted on a billboard in your hometown? Your voting record during the last 10 years of elections, or your buying history at Walmart or on Amazon? Exactly. And how did this enormous nationwide surveillance apparatus, without even the merest hint of oversight or regulation, come to exist? The mail, ladies and gentlemen. That's right, the postage stamp people. Get this. By the post office's own figures, direct mail advertising resulted in over $17 billion in revenue to the post office in postage alone, propping up what would otherwise be a bankrupt organization. The entire direct mail industry, that crap in the mail you throw away, is surely north of a $50 billion a year industry if you consider design, printing, targeting data, and postage. To put that in perspective, all of Google makes just over that much in a year. In 2014, online marketers spent about $19 billion on display, basically the Internet other than Google and Facebook. So we've got almost another Google, three Internets, or three Facebooks of money waiting in the offline sidelines. Think about that for a second, particularly if you, like me, live in the maelstrom of pixels and electrons that characterizes contemporary digital life. To do direct mail, you have to kill a tree, make it into paper, hire a designer, print something pretty on it, properly package or envelope the thing, and then pay the post office around 20 cents in bulk to send it. Do the math. It works out to about $1,000 CPMs, cost per thousand views. Most online media sells for somewhere around $1 CPM, perhaps a bit more. That means online advertising can get away with being a thousand times less effective than mail and still come out even in terms of your marketing return. Ask yourself, which have you done more recently? Clicked on an ad and bought something online, as rare as that may be, or responded to a mail solicitation? Yep. So there's a pile of money $50 billion tall waiting to launch itself into digital media if it can just figure out how to translate all that data it has into a form of online identity. This is already happening. Sort of. The term of art to describe this witchcraft is data onboarding, and it works as follows. Companies like Datalogix, Newstar, and LiveRamp buy web real estate on second-tier social networks. High Five or Orcut, anyone? Email newsletters, dating sites, hint, Match.com doesn't just make money on subscriptions, or anywhere that personal information like name and address meets a browser. 
That means these onboarding companies literally have a tiny image, usually just white space, on whatever your browser is loading when you're interacting with an email or with a website where you've got an account. Any place that knows offline details about you. That's enough for them to either drop a cookie or read one that's already there. Since they know from the newsletter you're reading that your email is agm at gmail.com or from match.com that your name is Antonio Garcia Martinez, they know to associate that browser cookie with various pieces of your personal information. That personal information is stored in a database, along with the browser cookie that corresponds to it, forming a bridge from real-world you to the browser version of you. It's probably in hashed form, but that's just privacy theater. If everyone agrees on the same hash function, it doesn't matter how it's stored. Footnote. Hashing is a computer science construct at the core of much of what we do on the Internet. In very simplified form, it's a function that maps arbitrary inputs to stable numerical outputs. It's a veiled, leak-proof way of comparing data without giving up all the goods. You get to check equality of identity without revealing identity itself, in the case of unmatched people. Think of it as a data condom. The action still takes place, but no extraneous data is shared. End footnote. That join between a cookie and personal information is then sold and resold a bazillion times a day to whoever is willing to pay for it. Using our description of keys above, we've joined a physical address, phone number, or legal name to an online device. The world of atoms has become bits and vice versa. Why is this important? Think about it. Media publishers like Facebook and Google are just more efficient versions of the post office. They deliver a message for money. They'll even give you a return receipt if you ask for it. What's different is the address they use to send it. In our mediated age, we've gotten to the point that a Facebook or Google user ID is a better way of reaching you than a name or physical address. I can scar your retinas for almost nothing, relatively, if I know your Facebook user ID. Your name and address would do nothing for me, unless, of course, they provided the primary key to a database of buying behavior spanning decades. Which they do, and that's the only reason, along with the legacy inertia of big company business relationships, that Axiom, Epsilon, and others are even still in business. Onboarding in the Facebook context is even cleverer. Facebook and companies like Axiom and DataLogix have compared personal data, with none sharing actual data with the other, again via the miracle of hashing, and joined the universal FB user ID to the analogous IDs inside Axiom, DataLogix, and Epsilon. The advantage that Facebook and Google have over the regular data onboarders is twofold. They have much more of your personal data, and they see you online all the time. The match rate, that is, the percentage of offline personas that can be found online, for Facebook's custom audiences product, introduced in 2012, and more on that shortly, is as high as 90%. That means for every 100 people marketers target via custom audiences, Facebook will find 90 of them, a shockingly high fraction in the fuzzy world of advertising. Facebook, Google, and others have achieved the holy grail of all marketers, a high-fidelity, persistent, and immutable pseudonym for every consumer online. Even better, they've joined that to your real-world persona, the one that shows up bleary-eyed at 2 a.m. at a Target in El Cerrito looking for tampons or a six-pack of natural light. Incidentally, this is all public and fully documented by Facebook press releases. It's just poorly understood and no one thinks about it, but people probably should.
I've delivered this now lengthy disquisition on digital marketing in a fairly straightforward and clear manner, as I hope you'll agree. There was nothing remotely straightforward or clear about the process by which Facebook arrived at these conclusions, however. In fact, this master plan, which emerged as Facebook's strategic play for digital dominance, took a good year of feverish debate, endless meetings with dozens of advertising companies, and full-throttle product development that changed direction the moment it started. One of the more popular Facebook posters announced, Every day feels like a week, which was true. Facebook was such an all-consuming mosh pit of a job, it felt you had somehow survived five days when you finally clocked out at 10 p.m. every day. Every month felt like a year, and a year? Well, you can imagine what that felt like. The people most directly responsible for Facebook's digital marketing vision from the product perspective were Brian Boland, Mark Rapkin, Matthew Varghese, Brian Rosenthal, and me. There was also considerable assistance from Ben Riesman, Ari Manikarnika, and Gary Wu, engineers who were on a team I'd lead that pioneered a novel approach to the identity problem. It's worth pausing for a moment to describe the cast of characters. Boland we've already met. He was at this point director of product marketing for ads and would soon enough be VP for ads technology. Rabkin was an interesting character. The child of Soviet Jews in that bumper crop of tech talent that the U.S. harvested from Brezhnev on, he was a rising engineering management star in Facebook ads. We had initially worked together when he managed the ads infrastructure that was critical to targeting and we'd grown close via many product collaborations. All ambitious men want either to please their fathers or to punch them in the goddamned face. Rabkin was the former, taking feedback on his performance seriously, going to grad school to please aforementioned father, and generally believing in the powers that be. I was the latter, and that's what ultimately would divide us, not to mention condition our respective attitudes toward Facebook's management. Varghese was a Google product manager with a Ph.D. in electrical engineering and a background in data. Time elsewhere had made him immune to blinkered Facebook bullshit, and he'd eventually take over the targeting team after I got swallowed by other products. Rosenthal was an exceptionally capable and easygoing engineering manager on the targeting team who'd manage one of two engineering teams that came out of this ideation process. He represented the best in Facebook engineering, Irreverence without disrespect, competence without arrogance, ambition without ego. How did we finally get on the right track? The way Facebook sussed out anything. It mooched information from potential acquirees and business partners via meetings of dubious good faith, and then figured out how to hack the outside world to its advantage. It's what every large company with incumbent leverage does, incidentally. Thus did some permutation of this crew, with one or another product marketer or engineer in tow, visit or meet with every company in this space, and I do mean every. Companies called Turn and MediaMath, which had each built the leading programmatic ads-buying technologies for ad agencies, the product interfaces looked like the cockpit of an F-16, patiently walked us through every technical and business aspect of their world. The market leader in third-party targeting data, a data broker named Blue Kai, schematically guided us along every piece of its data plumbing. Meetings with Axiom and Epsilon yielded explanations of how they warehoused all the world's consumer information and used it with pinpoint targeting accuracy. The tech companies in this world were extraordinarily savvy and understood better than we did how Facebook could monetize its data. During these initial meetings, in which we delicately, or so we thought, asked leading and instructive questions, these companies very patiently answered them all. 
On more than one occasion, I caught a look or overheard a slipped comment that revealed just how incredulous they were at our cluelessness. I'm sure they went back to their offices and had a good laugh at our stupid questions, but we were Facebook, so they had to smile to our faces and appear promptly at every meeting in a giving mood. The old-school companies that came out of the direct mail world were less technically savvy. I still remember our first meeting with Experian. Footnote. You might know Experian as one of the big three credit bureaus that determine your financial reliability. That's but one side of their business, and a relatively small one at that. The other business is tracking everything you buy with that credit they helped you get. End footnote. They didn't know what the hell was up, and I'm sure whoever Boland or Rob Daniel, our business development guy, first contacted was probably the wrong entry point to the company. But the net of it was they sent out a relatively junior B team. Given the epic data join Facebook was contemplating, this was a time-wasting mistake on their part, but we went with the meeting we had. This sharp point of the intimidating direct mail spear was composed of two people, a nice matronly woman named Carmen and a kind of rumpled, wrinkled dude whose name I forget. Carmen held a large box in her arms. It should be noted that Experian was based in Schaumburg, Illinois, a distant suburb of Chicago. I had to look it up, and they had flown out from the heartland for this meeting. I brought you these. Enjoy. Carmen thrust the box into my arms, and the emetic smell of vegetable shortening hit my nostrils. Ah, and these are... I asked with a smile plastered on my face. Cookies, said Carmen. She looked like a woman who enjoyed baked goods. Aha, I said, and looked down. It was a red and white striped box with the name of a local bakery plastered on it. Looked like the small-town institution that produced the Proustian Madelines of a Midwestern childhood. Schultz's Bakery, established 1929. That sort of thing. Trying to make light of this awkwardness, I ventured some humor. But I thought we were bringing the cookies to this deal. Carmen and Rumpled Guy looked at me, smiling in that polite way you do when you've missed a beat. The entire proposed relationship was, of course, a huge trade of Experian's personal data for Facebook's cookie data since Facebook knew every browser you were on. Experian brought to the table everything you bought in the physical world, along with your name, email, and address, and Facebook was to tell it where you were online. Ergo, the browser cookies. But they didn't get that, or much of anything in the meeting that followed. We were clueless relative to the wizened ad tech pros who had built an edifice we didn't understand outside our walled Facebook garden. Yet we lived in a different world from these direct mail people. Facebook was kind of stuck in the middle and trying to move in both directions at once.